Welcome to the fifth Frontline Gastroenterology podcast related to the FG Twitch debate on Tuesday the 13th of January entitled Frontline Neurogastroenterology, Evidence-Based Therapeutics and Irritable Bowel. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and I'm a gastroenterology registrar in London. And I'm thrilled and delighted to introduce Dr. Alex Ford, an associate professor and honorary consultant gastroenterologist at Leeds University and St. James's University Hospital, Leeds, in the United Kingdom. Dr. Ford has published over 190 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, including original scientific papers in JAMA, British Medical Journal, Gastroenterology, Gut, Archives of Internal Medicine, and the American Journal of Gastroenterology. His H-index on the Web of Science is 34, and his papers have been cited almost 3,000 times in total. In addition to his many accolades and positions of responsibility, Dr. Ford is an international expert in functional GI disorders. His MD thesis was used to inform the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence Guidelines on the Management of Dyspepsia in the UK. And whilst on sabbatical in Canada in 2007, he conducted a series of systemic reviews and meta-analyses to inform the American College of Gastroenterology's monograph for the management of irritable bowel syndrome. He updated his work in 2014 and was the first author on the latest version of the monograph published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in August 2014. Dr. Ford, thank you for doing this podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate in which you included a number of brilliant slides. A summary of the Twitter debate and this uh, and, and your slides and this podcast will be on the Frontline Gastroenterology website. During the Twitter debate, we focused on the evidence-based therapeutics in irritable bowel syndrome. But during the Twitter debate, it became clear that a number of doctors contributing um, focused on really what the scale of the problem was related to, uh, to irritable bowel syndrome, both worldwide and in outpatient and GP clinics, and also why people developed the condition initially. They also seemed to focus a lot on on the stigma that can be associated with IBS, both within and outside the medical community. Are you able to uh, explain, first of all, what the scale of the problem is, and the likely etiologies, and also tackle this, this perception of a, of a stigma associated with a, a disease such as IBS um, that has been suggested? Well, um, thanks very much, firstly, Philip, for that very kind introduction. And I'd also like to thank all the people who took part in the um, Twitter debate on Tuesday evening. The first thing to say is that irritable bowel syndrome is extremely common. If you go out into the general population and survey people, about 10%, so one in 10 people in the community will report symptoms that are compatible with irritable bowel syndrome. Now, obviously, not everyone who reports those symptoms will go on to consult a doctor as a result of them, but we know around about 40%, so four in 10 people will consult a GP um, because of their symptoms. In terms of health economics, IBS is um, extremely expensive to the health service. In the US, it's estimated it costs around about a billion dollars in direct costs and another $50 million in indirect costs due to absences from work, travel to appointments and investigations, etc. So it's a huge problem both for um, the sufferers and also for society as a whole. Et the etiology of IBS is obviously multifactorial and in some respects poorly understood. Probably 
the best known risk factor that we have for irritable bowel syndrome is acute gastroenteritis, so an enteric infection. And this can leave some people with what we know as post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. But there are equally many people who have IBS or who develop IBS who've got no obvious precipitating cause. One of the theories that's gained traction over the years is this biopsychosocial model that involves both stress, upbringing, history of abuse, and other traumatic events that lead to an abnormality in the brain-gut axis, which generates symptoms. But there are other um, other explanations that have been theorised. So we have genetics, so that IBS is more common in families. So people who have a first-degree relative with IBS are more likely to, to, to develop IBS themselves. There's also evidence from translational studies that show that things like central pain processing is abnormal in people with irritable bowel syndrome. There's evidence of visceral hypersensitivity. So if we stimulate the GI tract in people with IBS, they will report pain at lower thresholds than control, pe control people who don't have irritable bowel syndrome. Altered motility is another factor, and the 5-HT receptor is involved in that, potentially. And then we've got environmental factors like diet. So some constituents of food may generate symptoms in people with IBS. Alterations in the microbiota and perturbations of the GI flora has been, have been demonstrated amongst people with IBS in some studies. And lastly, and this goes back to the post-infectious IBS phenomenon, there's been many reports that although when patients with IBS are colonoscoped and their colonic biopsies are examined according to sort of conventional reporting systems, there's no evidence of any microscopic or macroscopic abnormalities. There is evidence of low-grade inflammation in a subset of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So inflammatory cells such as T cells and mast cells um, have been demonstrated at higher levels and higher numbers in um, patients with IBS compared to controls. So that, that's kind of a broad discussion around the, the multifactorial etiology, but it's unlikely that IBS is caused by a single one of these issues. It's heterogeneous and that makes it difficult to treat. And that kind of leads me on to the, the, the third part of your question, which was to do with the stigma. I think patients feel perhaps stigmatized or some patients with IBS feel stigmatized firstly because some doctors aren't able to explain the cause of their symptoms and the exact cause of IBS remains even now unknown but also I guess some some doctors themselves feel quite powerless to help patients with IBS and I felt that way myself when I was a registrar seeing patients with IBS because I guess I didn't really know the literature at that stage and I just thought, well, none of these treatments seem to work. I put a patient on mebevirin, they come back three or six months later and they're no better, what do I do now? And the only way that I started to feel more confident about treating IBS was when I sat down in Canada and started to systematically assess the literature. And because of that first-hand experience, I, I obtained a detailed knowledge of the evidence behind treatments and what treatments were effective and which ones weren't and and now I can put that into practice but like any findings in scientific medicine those results take many years to trickle down so that though most of those papers were published five years ago and as you'll have seen from my slide um, in the Twitter debate on Tuesday 
many of the treatments that we know as gastroenterologists are effective and that there's reasonable evidence behind, many GPs don't use. Um, and that could be either because they don't feel confident using them or they just are still unaware that these treatments are effective. And so if patients don't get effective treatment and their symptoms are um, troublesome and making their lives miserable and they feel that their doctors are fobbing them off, then they become they start to feel detached, I guess, from their from their um, healthcare provider, and they start seeking other avenues, alternative and complementary therapies. As a result, yeah, I, I thank you for that fantastic overview. I mean, I think um, certainly related to uh, the, the the stigma issue, I think you summarised the issues there beautifully. So thank you very much for that. Um, another area that I picked up of, uh, of of uncertainty that came out in debate was who to investigate for other organic causes in quotation mark and and then what investigations do you perform and, and when really uh, especially given you know um that in some healthcare settings including the NHS resources can be limited could you suggest a potential uh, approach to this um, but also in, a, in addition a comment on how you discuss IBS and its management and treatment with your patients in view of your expertise and, and knowledge of the literature and, and all available treatments? You know, all our guidelines, international guidelines and national guidelines as well, tell us that irritable bowel syndrome is not a diagnosis of exclusion and that it should be reached using a positive diagnosis <clears throat> if patients fulfill certain symptoms or symptom-based criteria. So the current gold standard that we have are the Rome 3 criteria, but this approach to diagnosing IBS goes back um, more than 30 years with the Manning criteria, which were reported in the 1970s in the BMJ. The problem with these criteria is that they actually perform only modestly in diagnosing IBS. And again, I showed a slide that that summarised the accuracy of these criteria on Tuesday night. The other issue is that most patients with IBS will have a first point of contact with their GP. And we know that GPs have often not heard of these criteria, particularly Rome 3, and they don't use them. So we, perform, we performed a survey recently in um, Leeds of over 100 GPs, and only around about 13 or 14% had heard of or used either the Rome or the Manning criteria. So that causes uncertainty for both the patient and the physician. And therefore, it's tempting for both patients and doctors to want to perform further investigations to rule out an, an organic cause and make sure they're not, not missing anything. However, we do know that injudicious use of investigations in IBS has A, a, a low yield for detecting organic disease, and B, it is kind of deleterious to the prognosis. In other words, it kind of raises false hopes in the patient that some, you know, there must be something that's explained this. It can't just be IBS. And so there's this fruitless sort of continued rounds of further investigations. The patient comes back, sees another registrar and another set of tests are ordered. And no one actually says to them at any point, oh, this, you know, this is almost certainly irritable bowel syndrome. In my practice, what I tend to do is try and use investigations judiciously. So, you know, obviously we would want to do some baseline bloods, particularly full blood count, C-reactive protein, just to make sure that there's not any evidence of anemia or neutrophilia or inflammation, because obviously then we'd be more worried about an organic cause. The other thing is that celiac disease 
can present with very similar symptoms to irritable bowel syndrome. So patients with celiac disease often get abdominal pain, bloating, and although most people think that patients with celiac disease will have diarrhea, there's actually quite good evidence that some patients with celiac disease are constipated. So the prevalence of celiac disease in people with IBS is about four times higher than people who don't have IBS or who don't have symptoms that sound like IBS. So routinely excluding celiac disease is something that all physicians should do when they encounter someone with symptoms that sound like irritable bowel syndrome. And that again, that's in all our most of our guidelines. In my mind, if patients have atypical symptoms, then I'm much more likely to start thinking about investigations. And I guess by atypical symptoms, I mean, if they're losing weight, if they have nocturnal symptoms. So if, in other words, if they have nocturnal pain or nocturnal um, diarrhea, then that starts to ring alarm bells in my mind. Most patients with IBS will have kind of the bulk of their problems will be first thing in the morning. They, have, they can't leave the house. They've got to go to the toilet four or five times if they've got diarrhea. It's rare that patients with IBS are having to get up in the middle of the night to pass a stool. So if they, if they tell me that's an issue, then I start to think, mm, this might not be irritable bowel syndrome. And the other thing to consider is family history. So if they've got a family history of inflammatory bowel disease or colon cancer, then again, you may have a lower threshold for ordering some investigations. Age is another issue as well, because obviously a change in bowel habit towards looser stools means that the patient then meets two-week weight referral criteria for suspected cancer, and therefore that patient should probably be being colonoscoped. I think it's, interest, it's, it's useful to think about subtypes here as well, because I, I believe, and we've done some research on this, which we're just about to publish in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastroenterology, that shows that it's mainly the patients with IBSD or mixed stool pattern who have an organic cause if they're investigated. Patients with IBSC are less likely to have an underlying organic problem. So that's kind of the way I go about it. But what I say from the outset to patients is this is almost certainly irritable bowel syndrome before I even start the investigations. And I give them some information about IBS and explain what it is. And I say, look, it could be one of these other things, but and we should just order some tests to make sure because some of your symptoms sound a bit atypical or because your brother has Crohn's disease or whatever. But I still say it's very likely this is IBS because I think the earlier the patient knows that and has some information, the more likely they are to start coming to terms with the fact that they've got a chronic medical condition that's difficult to treat. That, that's, a, that's a really uh, helpful insight, actually, and, uh, and really useful ad advice for our listeners um, in terms of how, how you conduct your, your outpatient clinics and consultations. So thank you for that. Many of our listeners will be healthcare professionals who manage uh, patients with IBS in outpatient clinic and, and will have used some of the, the very common uh, treatments such as peppermint oil or tricyclic antidepressants. Would you be able to comment very briefly on the evidence for their use, but also, uh, as you did so well in the Twitter debate, explain your symptom-based treatment approach for these long-standing therapists? The first thing to say is really that for the, for the existing treatments that we have, so antispasmodic, soluble fiber, peppermint oil, and antidepressants, the evidence is less strong than for the newer treatments. Now, that's partly because a lot of these trials are old. And so they were designed before there were recommendations as to how functional GI treatment trials should be run. 
and the endpoints they use are suboptimal because the landscape has changed completely in the last 10 years and most drugs now have to go through very strict um, endpoint assessment in order to get FDA approval. So all these other drugs were tested and reported before these types of endpoints were introduced. But having said all that, when you look at the data, for, certainly for drugs like peppermint oil and tricyclics, and you pool the data in these forest plots that I put up, you can see that all the trials in those um, forest plots are actually showing a benefit. They're all showing a benefit of the treatment. Now, what the problem is in a lot of these, those trials is that the benefit is there, but the actual result is not statistically significant. And that's because the trials are small and they're underpowered. But when you pool the data, the bottom line is that the drug seems to work. And that's the beauty of meta-analysis. That's one of the purposes of meta-analysis is that when you've got lots of small trials that are positive but not showing a benefit, it, it, it increases the power of the data you have and it allows you to detect a statistically significant difference. So the, that's the existing therapies. Now, I guess in terms of how I approach patients with IBS in terms of treatment, I think the first thing to say is general advice. So there's reasonable evidence that insoluble fiber makes patients with IBS symptoms worse, particularly things like pain and bloating. So I generally tell patients, often you'll find that, they, that they're, trying, they're trying to eat as much fiber as possible because they think it's healthy, you know, this is good, I should be eating granola, I should have two slices of wholemeal bread um, from, with, my, with my breakfast, um, I eat lots of fruits and vegetables. So I, I try to tell them to, to reduce that, that's the first thing. The second thing is there's, there's at least one trial that shows that exercise is beneficial in IBS. So a bit like in fibromyalgia, exercise can be useful and in chronic fatigue. In IBS, exercise appears to improve symptoms. So that's just the general kind of lifestyle advice. But in terms of my symptom-based approach, what I do is really I explain to the patient that because IBS is heterogeneous, they're going to have a lot of symptoms. But I ask them what the what the predominant symptom is, what's the most troublesome symptom for you. And I try and direct treatment towards that. And so as I, as I, as I put up in that treatment algorithm, what I tend to do is use um, soluble fiber first line for constipation, antispasmodics or tricyclics first line for, for diarrhea. If bloating's a significant problem, then I would often send them to see a, diet, a dietitian to think about a low FODMAP diet or I suggest a probiotic. Now, I, I can't prescribe probiotics, but I can suggest which ones might be beneficial. And for pain, I tend to suggest, again, either antispasmodics, peppermint oil, or tricyclics. In terms of beyond that, well, we've got newer drugs coming through. So linaclotide is a, a, a useful drug now for constipation-predominant IBS, where patients have failed a first-line therapy, and that's another drug I tend to use. Access to psychological therapies is difficult. We can, in Leeds, refer people. Um, we're allowed to refer a certain number of people for um, hypnotherapy, and so sometimes we use that, but um, that's ten I tend to use that further down the line. The main thing to remember is patients' symptoms change. So the predominant symptom changes, so it's important the next time you see them to just check you know, did the treatment work and also, and what's, you know, what's been the main problem for you at the moment. 
but also patients with IBS, their symptoms can change altogether so that their IBS gets better, but they then start complaining of reflux or dyspepsia. So it's important to check that you're still treating IBS and also that you're still treating their main symptom. Leading on from uh, the previous question, uh, and you touched on it very briefly, emerging new therapies on the market for the treatment of IBS. I know you mentioned one. Um, briefly, are you able to describe what the, the uh, indications or what the current evidence there is available for their use? The, the emerging drugs, the ones that are, coming, are about to become available or are already available, we have linacrotide and lubiprostone, both of which are licensed for the treatment of constipation predominant irritable bowel syndrome. They've both been tested in rigorously designed randomized control trials, large trials, and um, both appear to be effective. Their benefit is modest, but again, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the older therapies. The trials are much more rigorously designed. The endpoints are harder to achieve. So although that means that the placebo response rate is generally lower in those sorts of trials, it means that the difference in treatment effect between the drug and the placebo is smaller, so the number needed to treat goes up. So for linacrotide, we have a number needed to treat of between 5 and 8, and for lubiprostone, it's between 12 and 14. The, the main issues with these drugs are, firstly, lubiprostone causes nausea, and that can be quite profound in some patients. And secondly, um, both drugs cause diarrhea, as would be expected, because effectively they are, you know, they're, they're, they're the, the, the way they work is to cause increased secretion into the colon. So some patients get troublesome diarrhea while they're taking them. In terms of um, the other available therapies or therapies that are coming through, there's rifaximin, which is a non-absorbable antibiotic. That's been tested in two very large trials which were published in the New England Journal um, a couple of years ago now, Target 1 and Target 2. It seemed to be particularly beneficial for patients who had bloating, um, but again, the absolute difference in treatment effect was small. It was only around about between 8 and 10%. So the number needed to treat was between 10 and 12. The FDA still haven't approved Rifaximin, and um, that's partly because of concerns that this is an antibiotic. What would happen if a patient got C. diff? What happens when their symptoms get worse? Do you give them another course? If you give them another course, what are the long-term consequences of continued antibiotic use in patients with IBS? And so there is another trial that's going on or another study that's going on at the moment or is just, I think, just completed called Target 3, which is a retreatment study of, of, of patients with IBS who've already had rifaximin and have needed another course. So the results of that, I would imagine, will be, will be published within the next year um, and we'll see what, what the FDA say then. In terms of diarrhea, there, we, we did have a drug that worked reasonably well, which was called Alocitron. Um, the problem with this drug was that it caused severe constipation and ischemic colitis, and it acts uh, on the 5-HT3 receptor. It was withdrawn several years ago now, um, although it is still available in the US, I think, on a, na on a named patient basis. Um, but we have now data for two other drugs, one of which is an old drug, Ondansetron, which has been used for nausea for many years. But interestingly, about 20 years ago, it was reported in a, in a, in a study that it caused um, constipation and that it slowed down GI transit. So Robin Spiller's group have performed a very elegant crossover study that was published in GUT last year, showing that ondansetron is very um, useful. It, it certainly improves diarrhea. It doesn't seem to have much effect on pain, but it improves diarrhea. 
considerably. And the other drug is Ramosatron, which is um, another 5-HT3 receptor antagonist. It's being used in Japan for IBSD, um, and again, it appears to be effective. Both of these drugs seem that there haven't been any reported um, patients experiencing ischemic colitis with either of these drugs. So we think they may be safer, but you need obviously for Ramosatron, there'll need to be some post marketing surveillance, I would imagine, and, and the drug isn't yet available in, in the West. Um, so that I guess those are the those are the kind of drugs that are coming through. There's another type. There's another drug similar to linaclotide, which is going through preliminary testing at the moment, called placanatide, which works in exactly the same way. Um, but those are the kind of the, the, the drugs that are on the horizon in the next year or two, I would imagine. They, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of great promise, and uh, it really le- leads me into my very final question, what you've just touched on, about really where the future areas of research and um, related to therapeutics and IBS are, and how you see potentially them changing the approach for a frontline gastroenterologist in an outpatient clinic in 5, 10, 15 years' time? That's a, a, a great question. Um, it's something that um, it's difficult, so it's always difficult to predict the future, obviously. But um, I guess we may what we may see is, firstly, newer treatments, Secondly, ways of predicting which treatments will respond. And thirdly, a switch in the way that we use our treatments. So I guess the first thing to say is that we have some evidence coming through from um, Peter Gibson's group that low FODMAP diet is extremely helpful in IBS. And their trials are very interesting. The problem is that they're quite small because the trials are very difficult to design if they're blinded. Um, and, and they're all from their centre at the moment. What we need are other trials from other groups using a low FODMAP diet and perhaps more pragmatic design where patients are randomised to usual management or a low FODMAP diet in primary care. And if we see a, a marked benefit of a low FODMAP diet, then I think that dietary manipulation may well become almost the first-line treatment. So the first thing you do with a patient with IBS is not put them on a drug. It's speak to them about the condition and then explain the prognosis, but refer them to see a dietitian for consideration of a low FODMAP diet. In terms of um, new treatments, I guess we could talk about psychological therapies, so treatments that work on the brain, and there's more and more trials coming through now of psychological interventions. And these, one of the problems with these is that they're time-consuming and, and therefore expensive because they need a therapist. But there's more trials coming through now with self-administered psychological therapies, which are being done over the internet. So almost the patient can treat themselves in their own home. They don't have to come and see a therapist. They don't have to come and see a doctor. So that, that's another future development. In terms of the drugs we've talked about on Dantotron, Ramosatron, we've got drugs that act on opioid receptors like Eluxadiline, which is, um, has just been studied in two large phase three trials, which were reported at DDW last year, and I suspect the full paper of that of those um, trials will be out soon. We've also got this issue of bile acid malabsorption in some patients with IBS, predominantly those with diarrhea, and also um, abnormalities of fecal bile acid levels in patients with constipation, predominant IBS. So what we may see is a use of 
bile acid binders and newer drugs than colocevalam perhaps for patients who've got diarrhea predominant IBS and also bile acid transporter inhibitors. So elabixibat is the first one of these, which basically almost induces bile acid diarrhea. So it prevents the bile acids being reabsorbed. They enter the colon and they cause increased water secretion. So using that as a treatment for patients with constipation predominant IBS. And the last thing would be ways of altering the microbiota. Now, we all know about fecal microbial transplant in C. diff. There's this landmark paper from the New England Journal where they had patients who were receiving antibiotics versus people who had an FMT, a fecal microbial transplant, and the trial had to stop early because the recurrence rate was so low in the FMT arm. That's led to trials of FMT in inflammatory bowel disease, and my old mentor, Paul Moyedi, reported a, an RCT of fecal microbial transplant in ulcerative colitis at last year's DDW. And the next logical step, in my mind anyway, is that FMT will be being used in IBS, and it already is in some places. Some people are already using um, fecal transplant to, in, in a clinical setting, not in a research setting, but in a clinical setting. But sooner or later, I'm sure there will be a controlled trial of fecal microbial transplant in IBS, and I think that's quite an exciting um, <clears throat> development. It's what the only issue is whether or not patients will find that an, ac an acceptable treatment. The, those are the kind of the, the, the future developments that I see, but it's also knowing which patients are likely to benefit from which treatment, and that we need prognostic studies and studies perhaps that start to look into the genetics of IBS and then perhaps the genetics of things like the 5-HT receptor in order to predict who's going to respond to remosetron, who's going to respond to andonsetron, looking at the fecal microbiota to predict who's going to respond to a certain probiotic or to an FMT, and that, that kind of approach perhaps in the future, but that's obviously some way down the line. Well, one, one thing that's clear is that this is a fascinating and really, really important area of, uh, of research and development for all frontline gastroenterologists. And, and so I'd like to thank you, Dr. Ford, for your fantastic contribution and support with both this podcast and, our, and the Twitter debate. We're really grateful, and frontline gastroenterologists are delighted that someone of your stature has been involved. The slides from the Twitter debate are, will be available to look at uh, via the link next to the podcast. The next FG debate, Twitter debate, is with Professor Mark Pritchard, who's a professor and head of Department of Gastroenterology and honorary consultant gastroenterologist at the University of Liverpool, and is on Tuesday the 10th of February 2015 at 8 until 9 p.m. GMT time, and we'll discuss frontline gastrointestinal neuroendocrine tumors, the approach to diagnosis and initial management. We hope you can join us then using the hashtag FGDebate. Thank you.